Turn your Bibles, if you will, to the book of Romans. I didn't think it was a foodie event. I thought it was to exercise off the calories, not put on the calories. It was game night. I don't know how it became food night. And Frazier's bringing birthday cake, I hear. So, I don't know. It's trouble. It's trouble. All right. Good Baptists. <clears throat> We're going to be talking about that this morning. So, it's appropriate. Romans chapter 6. We'll begin reading in verse 1. Romans 6, I'll be reading out of the New King James Version, as is my custom. God's Word says, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, and that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. The life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lusts. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Well, this morning... We are going to try to handle more than just one verse, like I did last week. We're going to uh, drive forward in our study in Corinthians in this idea of unity that God has called the church to. Uh, We are going to first be confronted with what does disunity look like and sound like. Before we get to Paul's real development of the power behind a unified church. And I want to remind you, this isn't only for a local church, but for the church universal. That we are really considering that oneness in Christ between all believers, those who have submitted themselves to that uniform message of Christ. And we can then, once we speak the same things, have that same testimony, that there should be a oneness in thought, there should be a oneness in belief, there should be a oneness also in activity. We come this morning to the one of, we'll say one of, the key activities of the church. And of all the formal, ritualistic things that we participate in, I think nothing has been more damaged and twisted and warped and confused than this act, and that's nothing new. The act of baptism was already something that was creating issues in the church, not baptism itself, but men's approach to it. And it seems that very little has changed over the years. So we want to look at this act that is intended to be a unifying thing that we can all share in. That was its intention, is to identify yourself with a body of beliefs. But that has taken on certainly an entirely different 
uh, idea, representation, uh, not just to one group, but to many groups. And we're going to delve into that this morning with God's help, and let's ask for it now. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. We thank you for your word before us. And Lord, as we contemplate early on in this study, we are already confronted with things that demand our willingness to subordinate ourselves to your word. To conform to your truth rather than seeking to manipulate your truth to conform to us. Lord, we need your help in this. It's a difficult work. Our pride is often in the way. And so we pray that you might find us a humble people prepared to receive your word and respond accordingly. Lord, we do pray your spirit might illuminate us to understand your truth, to apply it consistently and be faithful to it. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 11, as Paul has just concluded that we should have the same judgment as well in certain issues, comes to the first issue of concern, which is the first evidence that he has that this is a church that is schismatic. It has been broken apart um, it's still meeting together, but within the confines of their building, or they didn't have a building, within the confines of their meetings, there's already these divisions amongst them. And we begin reading in verse 11, uh, For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. Now I say this, that each of you says, I am of Paul, or I am of Paulus, or I am of Cephas, or I am of Christ. And he asked the question, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you or were you baptized in the name of Paul? And we're going to stop right there very briefly. I want to address a couple of things already that, that uh, are uh, not just prereqs to getting to the study on, that we want today, but they are important in of themselves. Um, we would sometimes maybe condemn Paul here a little bit for hearing these things second hand, um, but he is willing to identify that who he is that he heard this information from. He is willing to be very specific about where it came from and what is being declared, and the evidence is from their response is that they, he was dead on. And so we have a reliable report coming to a pastor uh, from a, who is at a great distance from the circumstance, and he says, this is something that needs to be addressed. Um, and I believe it. And essentially that is the, the, the feeling of verse 12 where he says, I say this to you. Um, not that he's saying, here's what you're doing, don't deny it, but rather I believe this report. I believe what I'm hearing and, and I hear it from Chloe's household. You all know her. Um, how that got transferred to him, we are not exactly sure. We'll find out a little bit more later on of the interrelationship between Paul and a lot of those that had taught and had been in the church at Corinth. But we find this report, this testimony, and fascinating that we just in the previous verse, in verse 10, got done talking about this uniform testimony. What is it that is known about us? What is it that characterizes us? And it ought to be Christ. That message of the gospel of Jesus Christ about the death, burial, resurrection, ascension of our Lord, that is our uniform message. And instead, what we are hearing out in the community of the church of Corinth is you're quarreling. You're fighting. And this isn't the what he's implying when he goes down to talk about that work of mending nets and, and of understanding the... the um, uh, working out the theologies that uh, the scriptures hold to and to conform ourselves to them, that, that tedious and patient work that we're supposed to be engaged in as to build unity in the church. Rather, he is seeing these contentions arise um, over self-importance, if we boil it down. We find these statements that they are dividing themselves up according to their favorite teacher. 
whether that be Paul, Peter, Apollos, or Christ. They are breaking out into these groups of allegiances. I won't say doctrines because they all have the same doctrine. But groups of allegiances, you might say, well, where did this all come from? What, what brought out these divisions? I mean, how much contact do these people really have with Peter uh, and these other men? And, and of course, um, how can you say negative things about someone who says, I am of Christ? And yet it wasn't the fact that they were careful to subordinate themselves to the teaching of Paul and Apollos and Peter and Christ. Um, that really wasn't the issue. The issue wasn't the fact that, well, I'm Paul, following Pauline doctrine. Um, that wasn't what was going on. These are statements of arrogance. These were issues of saying, um, here I am a follower of so-and-so, when all of them are pointing to Christ himself. Even those who are saying, I'm of Christ, and therefore I don't have to follow Pauline doctrine or Petrine doctrine or Apollos. I don't have to follow these guys because I'm of Christ. I'm above them. Every one of these statements is a statement of arrogance. Saying that somehow either you have no authority over me or I can operate independently. Um, you don't understand my position and I have a superior one to you. Built upon this man's teaching or at least my take on that man's teaching. And I'm not... Um, so foolish as to think that because they said, I am of, that they were actually following that man's teaching. Because the fact is, if they were, this wouldn't have happened. It was their interpretation of their teaching. You might say, well, Peter, what access did he have to Corinth? And many commentators, I think rightly, identify that as probably the Judaizers those that wanted to stay close to their Jewish roots and hold on to the law. And so they're like, well, you know, Paul says to throw off the law and he's very anti-Semitic almost, and, and, uh, or at least perceived that way, which is kind of funny because he's a Jew of the Jews. Um, and so they wanted to stick to it. And so we already know that Peter was having some problems in this area of understanding the, the uh, extent to which the law was, was accomplished, completed, finished in Christ. And so, um, very easily this could come up. And so you have the Judaizers, I, I, I would hold to to some degree, uh, the Jews among the Corinthian church, saying, we're Peter and this Paul character and he's Apollos fella. And, uh, you know, we don't, they don't have the tradition we have. Could you just hear them? The Jewish tradition. You can imagine the Apollos people saying, well, you know, our guy, I mean, you can enjoy listening to this guy speak. We know that Paul wasn't an excellent speaker. He admits so himself in the next book, in fact. Um, and we find that uh, easily they could attach themselves to Paul. Well, he started this church. He came in. He's the founding uh, apostle, if you will, here. But Paul doesn't go to any of those. We can imagine that those might be the reasons that they could attach themselves to these men, but Paul doesn't go there. He doesn't really talk about those as the reasons. He boils it down to one presentation of ministry, and that is baptism. You see, there was a shallowness in the Corinthian church that produced these divisions, this was not a in-depth commitment to certain theological bents, but rather a very shallow and very arrogant and prideful issue. And so Paul asked the question, not only is Christ divided, was Paul crucified for you? Those are fundamental to that uniform message that we have. But the third question he asked is what he's going to first deliberate on, and that is, were you baptized in the name of Paul? He goes to their baptism as a unifying activity that, that should have drawn them together to understand who they are as a people of God. And like so many since that time, instead of being a unifying thing, it is a disharmonious thing. And Paul 
it is, re, relates really that the issue was, who baptized you? I got baptized by Apollos. I don't think Christ would have baptized any of them. Possible, I guess. I was, you know, I follow Peter's baptismal. And Paul says, you know, that's not what it's about. But we are going to set things straight on baptism because you've made it something that it isn't. You think that somehow the one who is performing the act with you, the one that is engaged in that, that is, that that is what is of substance and it's not. The substance of the baptismal act is not who performs it. And here we Baptists probably are guilty too. Because we have spent enormous amounts of effort to substantiate, and it's easily done, to substantiate and to defend believers' baptism by immersion. And we spend a lot of time to explain, and I do it in my baptismal classes, why do we use immersion? Why do we baptize? And we talk about the symbols that are there. We're going to refer to those today, certainly. Uh, we refer to, and so we talk a lot about the mode of baptism. Um, there are some among Baptists, and Baptists is a big category. We recognize that, that uh, it's a wide uh, spectrum of practices among Baptists. Uh, there are some that will, that will say, you know, the only baptism we'll recognize is one that is from our kind of Baptist church. And they wouldn't recognize a baptism performed by this church um, and they would require you to be rebaptized to join their church. That's among Baptists. Because we've been caught up in the who is doing it and the how it's done. We've been caught up in the mode and the mechanism instead of in the meaning. And yes, I agree that the mode does reflect some meaning. I'm not negating that. Obviously, I hold to that position. In the study of God's Word, it is the, is the only really tenable position um, is that this is the mode. And it is the fullness of the meaning that is there in that mode. But we don't emphasize the mode. No more than we need to emphasize the one who is performing that act. Um, I had this issue on several occasions as a pastor in other churches and, and well, do we recognize this baptism? Do we recognize this church's baptism? Do we recognize this church's baptism? I ministered in college in a brethren church where they baptized people three times forward. Once in the name of the Father, once in the name of the Son, and once in the name of the Holy Spirit. Okay, well, do we take that one? Believers, baptized by immersion, how far do we have to go? And someone asked you, well, would you accept this baptism? Well, fundamentally, we, in terms of mode, we ask, were you a believer? Is it a statement of your testimony you're following in Christ um, and not something you did beforehand where you weren't a believer? Was it a statement, I am following Christ? And was it by immersion as a as the mode? And beyond that, I don't find Scripture giving us a whole lot more. Now, I can theologically go behind that and say, well, you know, we're really only baptized into Christ, Romans 6 says. We're not baptized into the Father. We're not baptized because they didn't die. Because baptism is a symbolic representation of death burial, and resurrection. And so I could have that argument with my brethren. brethren. Um, why? Somewhere in the middle of all that, they got baptized in the name of the Son. I don't know if the first one was a pre-wet or a pre-wash and the other one was a rinse. I don't know, but the baptism in the middle worked. Didn't it? And we get this arrogant statement, that idea that we're the only ones doing it right. And we can't recognize that what God calls us to is an act that is supposed to represent a unity in Christ, that we have this following, we have this commitment, that when Christ died, He died for me. That when He was buried, He was buried for me. That when He rose again, He rose again for me. And I can walk in newness of life today because of that 
faith commitment I've made to that person at work, Jesus Christ. This Paul seeks to declare Romans chapter 6. We've studied this extensively in the past, but Paul here again, and we're going to take a little different tack, but I want to just drive home this point um, that it's the theology behind the baptism that is so important. Lest we focus so much on the mode and we forget the meaning. One of the things we are declaring is my association with Christ. Because we have had, we have 2,000 years between us and the Bible period, we have 2,000 years of further tradition to deal with. Trying to add meaning to it. And that fundamentally is the point of separation. Is when we start adding meaning or changing the meaning of what baptism is about. We go back 2,000, 2,200 years. We find that baptism was a declaration that I am the follower of. I am the follower of. It is a public revelation or declaration saying, I am the follower of. And so John came and he baptized and that was something that was recognized by the community at large. What it meant is that these people are making a commitment to be a follower of John's teaching, which was repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And they were submissive to that message and they went in and were baptized in rivers and lots of water, and that kind of rules out. I keep going back to mode because I've been trained really well in how to teach mode of baptism, how to do it. But they recognize it. The, the Jewish people recognize it. This is simply their public declaration that they are the follower of. You can see now why in the Corinthian church, baptism is something Paul wants to take up right away. It's not because you're baptized by Pastor Kirk, that you're the follower of Kirk. That's not what we are declaring. It might be looked upon that way, but it's not intended to be. And so our whole focus in the baptismal act is to put our attention upon Jesus Christ. Because it is a declaration that I am a follower of Christ. This is Jesus' baptism, if you will. This is our baptism into Christ. And... Thus, when Jesus himself comes to be baptized, not for removal of sin, he didn't have that issue, and baptism doesn't remove sin anyway. Can't do it. It is not because he had something to repent of, it is because he himself said, I need to associate with this group. I need to identify myself with the people of the kingdom of God. And that's what the baptismal act is about. That we identify ourselves with this uniform message I'm a follower of the one who died, was buried, and rose again, Jesus Christ. And that, fundamentally, is what we're seeking to communicate. And Paul says, listen, I'm glad I didn't baptize a bunch of you. I'm glad, and and that might disturb a few of us, (laughs) that Paul's not out there baptizing? I mean, if I wrote letters back and and we have missionaries right back. Oh, we got lots of people saved, and we're just waiting to baptize them. Um, we're not really into that. If a, if a missionary wrote to me in this verse at the end of our passage today, um, where was it? I'm, I'm in, getting ready to get into Romans, but let me back up here a little bit. Wrote to me this verse and said, um, Christ did not send me to baptize. We'd get a little upset. Wouldn't we? If any of our missionaries wrote to us and said, Christ did not send me to baptize, we would get upset. Oh no, go, make disciples of all nations, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach them to observe all things whatsoever I commanded. Lord, I'm with you always, even to the end of the earth. See, it says to baptize, you got to do it. What's Paul trying to communicate? Is the baptism is a secondary act. It is not the primary act. Paul says the gospel is communicated first. Baptism is secondary. And it is not fundamentally about the gospel. 
That might shake you up a little bit. Go, what do you mean? Baptism is not really about the gospel? No, the gospel is about be, make, is getting in a right relationship with God. It's about coming to God and subordinating ourselves to Him and, and confessing our sins, repenting of our sin, and, and trusting His Son, Jesus Christ. And at that point, all the work of God to save us is accomplished. It isn't about a ritualistic act that I do as part of the gospel. The gospel is independent of the baptismal act. And this has been the problem over the years, the centuries, where the church has started to meddle with this concept of what is baptism about. Paul says, listen, I'm not here to baptize. I'm here to preach the gospel, which is a distinct thing from baptism. Let's get our focus right. The uniform message is not, we baptize you three days after you get converted. Um, no, we baptize you this mode, this, this way. No, our message, our uniform message is the cross. Paul says, this is what I'm there to preach because that is your salvation. The baptismal act is not about coming into a right relationship with Christ. But it is about being a united church. It is an aspect of living out the Christian life, but it is not a part of the gospel of coming to Christ. That must be independent of any act of man, of any ritual of man. As soon as we add ritual, and i got to tell you, we've kind of done that in another area, even before baptism, by uh, printing off this little thing called the sinner's prayer. It becomes almost a ritualistic act. Pray these words. Repeat after me. Can you not come up with your own words to tell God you're sorry for your sin and you want what He has to offer you? We have this ritualistic, repetitive little prayer that we have printed on a little card and say, read this. How are we different? much different than the Muslims who come and say, you know, repeat this phrase five times and bam, you're a Muslim. That's how easy it is to become a Muslim, by the way. There's no God but Allah. There's no God but yeah, Allah. Muhammad is his prophet. Say that five times, and I have said it at least that many times in my life. Um, and wham, you're you're a Muslim. Well, how are we much different? when We walk up, you'll pray this little prayer. Here you are. Here's the ritual. And wham, you're Christian. How does it feel? Well, how can it feel? And yet we associate it with baptism as well. Get this act done, and wham. How's that feel? Oh, it's exciting. They didn't do anything for you except maybe wash you off a little bit of some physical filth. If you haven't received Christ as your Savior, it does nothing. It has no meaning other than what you ascribe to it and whatever you're ascribing to it is not what God ascribed to it. Therefore, in terms of His kingdom, it is pointless. And so when the church begins to meddle with this idea that somehow attaches baptism to the gospel, we get into deep trouble anytime we start to conceive that somehow this removes anything of sin or the stain of sin or any association with that, we have made less of Christ. We have brought Christ down and we have made Him less than the Savior of the world. For now His blood is not sufficient. We have to add our ritualistic act in these waters of baptism. And instead of being what it was intended to do, which we're going to study, I'm, I am getting there, we make it part of the gospel. And Paul says, no, it's not part of the gospel. That's why when I come, I don't do a lot of baptizing. And he lists off a few, and, and we can, you know, it's kind of neat to see Paul you know, I'm starting to associate with him a lot more in a passage like this where he says, um, I don't really remember who all I baptized there. I'm starting to forget that too. You know, did I, did I do that? Um, but Paul has those issues just like we do. It, it's nice to see his humanity come out there in the text. He says, I remember baptizing this household. I remember baptizing, I might have baptized, I don't remember. But you know what? It wasn't my big deal. It wasn't what I did a lot of. I was preaching the gospel and baptism is distinct from it. Baptism can be done by others. My responsibility, if anything, was to disassociate baptism from the conversion. So you understood that it was all Christ. 
Christ died for you. It's His shed blood that washes away sin. And this is the emphatic statement of Paul when he says, you know, I didn't come to baptize. Are we, are we commanded to be, to be baptized and to baptize others? Yes. Is it critical to their relationship with God in heaven? Not in the establishment of it, no. It is entirely dependent upon their receiving Christ as Savior. Period. You muddy those waters of baptism with the idea of removal of sin, you are doing not an injustice to baptism, you're doing an injustice to Christ. Saying His sacrifice is insufficient. It's not enough. So let's look at Paul in Romans 6. This is really in the context of why do Christians avoid sin? I would contend that one of those sins that we are to avoid is contentions, quarrels, fights, disunity. But let's look at it in that context. It says, don't you know, verse 3, that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. And so we have this declaration that those who follow the Lord and believers' baptism are making. They are declaring, I am one of those that has died in Christ. It is the definition of who I am now. I am a saint, a holy one. One whose sins has been taken away not by the baptismal act, but by the work of Christ Jesus in his death. It says, therefore, we are buried with him, with him, through baptism into death. That just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. We have been united together. You see the verse 5? We have been united together in the likeness of his death. We've done something to kind of look like and associate with his death, burial, and resurrection. We've been united But it is not that act, this physical act of being dunked in the water that does that, but rather is a declaration that it has already occurred in our life. That we have already been united with Him. And now in this act of baptism, we are declaring it to others that when Christ died, I was there. Not in my pre-born state, like we have a soul banks in heaven that's that's going to empty out one day. Um, But rather, I was there, my sin was there when Christ died. By faith, I trust in it. That payment. And when He was buried, my sin self was buried there. My old master, my old man, it says in verse 6, was crucified there. The body of sin was done away. And I've been freed from sin. What was killed back there, what, what died and was buried and rose was died and buried back there wasn't something I missed. It's something that was ruining my life. And its power is gone. Not by the baptismal act is its power gone, but it is by the work of Christ in me. And now, by participating in this baptism, I am declaring that I trust only in Him. We are declaring this. And then as we come up out of the baptismal tank, we are declaring that we are going to walk in newness of life, He says. That we who have believed in Him, have died with Him, will also live with Him. And the death no longer has dominion. That is, if death doesn't have victory over Christ because He rose from the dead, it should have victory in my life either. For the power of the resurrection is at work here. Not because of my baptismal act, but because of the gospel. So Paul takes this ritual act of baptism. says, this is nothing to glory in. 
This is nothing to bring contentions and divisions. This should be something that we all share. There should be a commonality. That we have all made this declaration that we are trusting in Christ. And it is public. If there's anything I take the church to task for, is that most of our baptisms aren't public. I know we say they're public because we do them in church services, um, but uh, that are open to the public, but frankly the public doesn't know what's going on in here. Um, I don't know how many of you caught it last Sunday night about phase three of our site development, um, what's going in out here in our courtyard. Did you catch what else is going in? How many of you caught it? What's going in out there? A baptismal pool is going to be outside. And it's going to be rough in January, but we're going to manage. Pastor Leachman's got plans for heated and bubbles. So he's, that's what I heard. I hope he follows through on it. Oh, it's a public declaration. I am a follower of. Jesus Christ, I have associated with his death. I trusted it. My old man has died, not because of this ritual, but because of the gospel. And now I want to declare it to you in this public way by trotting down to this river and doing a weird thing, having somebody else throw you underwater and pull you up. And that is really important. You say, well, I self-baptized. You know, okay, I'm baptized. And I had somebody tell me that, actually. I baptized myself. I said, at home in your tub? By the way, your role in the baptismal act is passive. Because your role in the salvific act is passive. Christ has to do it all. I don't usually teach that in my baptismal class, but it is something that I tell people to, I try to help them to just relax. I haven't lost anyone yet. And, um, you know, it helps when they're under 300, 400 pounds, but I, even then in water you float and it'll come up and you'll be all right. Um, but I really don't stress that, but the whole act of having someone do that to you, let's just be honest with you, that you have to trust that person because it's a picture of trusting Christ implicitly. That I am simply letting him do for me what only he can do for me. And that's one of the other aspects of our... See, I'm really good at teaching the mode of baptism, aren't I? Another aspect, why it's so important that that happen. Where does it come into unity? It, instead of being a divisive element, baptism should be something that draws us together. But when we focus on where we were baptized, and I caught this a lot in Israel when we were there, and I was asked to perform baptisms in the Jordan River, and the list was like, almost everybody wanted to be baptized in the Jordan River. I'm like, why? If you've already been baptized, why would you want to do this? It's the Jordan River. Jesus was baptized there. Does it make it better? Is the waters of the Jordan that much improvement? Do you expect leprosy to fall off your body afterwards? You know, in that case, you should go down there seven times and do it. You know, what, what is the, but the idea, uh, and it's the fancifulness of the human nature to say with arrogance, I have a, and I had, by the way, I did have to sign little certificates, and I actually had someone call me, um, email me, and say, I lost my certificate that I was baptized in the Jordan River. Could you, do you have any extras? Like I produced them. And it was, I just signed the things in Israel. That's all I did. And so someone else on the tour gave us theirs and we had to make a color copy and I had to sign the original and then send it to them. That was their Christmas present from somebody they loved. Well, somebody loved them. Um, we have a little certificate on the wall that say, I was baptized in the Jordan River. Ooh-ah! Did it get you closer to God? Is it more precious than someone else's baptism that got baptized in the dirty little Rio Grande? No. But you see how the human nature is? 
is the nature of man to try to elevate our experience somehow above other people's experience. And I've encountered people like that, that and, and they're name droppers. And, and, well, I was saved under so-and-so's ministry, and I was baptized under so-and-so. And, and usually they're well-known names that are national people that have that kind of exposure. And I'm like, huh, what's wrong? I'm not impressed. I'm discouraged. I'm unimpressed. And that's not the opposite of impressed. I'm depressed. Because you just ruined the act. Because you're trying to say somehow by being baptized by that person or in that place in particular, that somehow your baptism is an improvement on the norm. You've stolen something from the very act that's supposed to unify us. And that's what the Corinthians were doing. They were taking something that God says, let this be a common practice for you, that you can all have this in common, that we have committed ourselves in this public fashion to declare, I am a follower of Christ. And we've stolen it and made it something to make us uncommon. I'm special. I was baptized uh, a little bit north of the Jordan River than everyone else so that my water was cleaner than theirs. Where does it end? Where does it end? The purpose of the baptismal act is to be a common practice that we can have this common testimony. I have trust in Christ. And when he died, I, was, I died. My old man, my sin died back there. And I'm living for Him. And we've lost track of that. Perhaps if we would stop quarreling over the exact mode and start looking at the not just the meaning, but the, but the message of a single baptismal act to say, this is our common statement, our public declaration that we share. And so it doesn't matter what day of the week it is, or what. And you know, my big thing was I was baptized on Easter. It's just a lot easier to remember that. And and does that make it special? Is my baptism better than some of yours? No. I was baptized. Isn't that enough? I received Christ my Savior. I want to declare that truth to those around me and to those that I didn't even know. And I want to participate in this act of uh, a strange, submissive act of being plunged underwater to be lifted up again, to picture what Christ has done for me, that you might know that henceforth I want to live this new way. And this is what Romans brings out, is that what should be the result of baptism is a full commitment to righteousness. How can we take something that's supposed to be a declaration that I'm going to walk a different kind of walk how can we take that and manipulate and use it to serve the old man that supposedly was dead? We're serving him when we say, I'm special. Got baptized in Jordan. Got a certificate. Here's this dude. Don't know him. But he's someone special probably. Which I, <laughs> I'm not. Had to be the only guy that they thought could do it. How can we take something that is to be the common experience and declare the end of the old man and then use it to feed the old man? To introduce sin in the church by saying that mine particular is of more value because I was baptized by Paul himself. Paul says, I'm glad I'm not part of that. 
Now, are we ready to throw out the baby with the bathwater? No. Do we abandon the baptismal act because it's been so abused? No. It's too precious to the church. But it's time we taught it and practiced it and spoke of it as we ought to. And I understand that we're confronted with a Christian community and a pseudo-Christian community that has put all kinds of different meaning and, and expressions about it, but it's time that we understood its import is not to complete my salvation, but to declare it and then to invite this evaluation of my life. It's an invitation saying, I'm making public this commitment to my life. I'm going to walk different. Because my old man's dead. How dare we then resurrect the old man in how we speak of our baptism? And yet the Corinthian church was doing just just exactly that. He's going to complete this this morning with verse 17. We looked at the first statement. Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. But I haven't taken us into the second half of verse 17. He says, not with the wisdom, not with wisdom of words, but the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. Fundamentally, when we start to emphasize human ritual, even God commanded we remove the effect of the cross of Christ. We detract from the gospel. We don't add to it. And yeah, you can use fancy words and you might be able to argue your way around that somehow your ignorance or avoidance of the biblical baptismal act, um, that you can somehow be excused from it. You go ahead. You're not going to convince me. You're not going to change God's word. You're just evidencing that the cross had no effect in your life. When we are submissive to the cross, submitting to baptism is nothing. Paul says, listen, I'm not sharing the gospel with the wisdom of words. I'm not you know, just a really good arguer and can get people into heaven that way because um, that would be dependent upon me and my special way of sharing Christ. But... I just want to use the simple truth because I don't want to detract from Christ, from the cross. In the Corinthians, the cross is our uniform testimony. Don't detract from it. Don't make it of no effect by your squabbling over who baptized you or what baptismal doctrine you're following. Just submit yourself to God. There won't be any issues. It won't be a difficult thing to engage in. If we're willing to go to God's Word and say, you know what, tradition aside, whatever the world says aside, I'm going to go to God's Word and I'm going to see what this baptism thing is all about and that's what I'm going to participate in. And I want the focus to be on Christ and Him alone. Why would Paul make such a statement that he wanted to preach the gospel and didn't really want to baptize too many people? He knew the the predilection of men. He starts saying, hey, I'm special. No, you're common. 
what we have is not unique baptisms. We have a unique Savior. One of a kind. Let's not rob him of the glory due his name for his work on Calvary's cross. Let our baptismal act be what it is. A testimony of a commitment you have made to the person and work of Christ. That I will follow him. You make it public and you're inviting the public to call you on that. You say you're this. Prove it. And they can do it every day and should. We should take it to heart that we are expected by God to live in this newness of life. The baptismal act doesn't enable us to do that. It doesn't give us the power to do that. But it is a public reminder. You made a commitment. And whatever was going on in your heart, you made this statement with your body. You're going to live up to it. You're going to live life of righteousness, resisting temptation and sin. Or you're going to make the cross of no effect. Just as baptism can be a very powerful testimony of your salvation, it can also be a way of destroying the work of Christ, of lessening it. And hence, we do take it seriously. But not to divide the church, but to bring her into unity. Remind ourselves, whose name are we being baptized in? And it's the name of Jesus. Jesus.